stretch time. Absolutely. November 7th? Yep. Yep. 11 days. It's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What, uh, do you feel like you and your family are all ready for what comes next? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, we're, you know, we're a political family, so, you know, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm the newcomer, uh, to this, but, you know, my wife is, I mean, we, you know, we are, uh, 15th anniversary is coming up and, you know, she was, she's been elected official the entire time we've been married. So, you know, I'm just joining the club. Used to being, I guess, in the public spotlight and kind of like living as someone under scrutiny. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Without question. But the, there's a lot of positivity to that too, right? It's not just a, a negative thing. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not so good. You know, it, you know, it comes with responsibility, but, you know, it comes with the ability uh, to make things happen. And, you know, so you have a lot of influence. So, you know, it, I mean, it, you know, the, you know, the old adage uh, to whom much is given, you know, much is required. So do you feel like that's always been the person you've been or did you have a transition in your life where you kind of started taking responsibility and becoming that kind of a leader? Um, I mean, I think I think it was always the person I was supposed to be. Um, you know, I think that, you know, you know, being married and being a father helped move me along, um, into, you know, really becoming that person. But I think that's always who I was supposed to be, but I, I definitely, you know, was much less responsible, you know, much less, uh, consistent, you know, uh, much less dependable, you know, when I was, you know, in my twenties going into my early thirties. Um, and I feel like, you know, over the last, you know, 15, 16 years, you know, I have, you know, continually, you know, made that transition over time and, you know, become the person, you know, that I am. What did it take to do that? So who did you look up to as that example? And what were the influences that allowed you to make that shift? That's an interesting question. I don't know if there's anybody in particular. I, I look, you know, Well, one of the people I look always look up to is my father. You know, my father's always been a very uh, responsible, you know, person. And I just think it's just, you know... uh you know, just life, you know, um, you know, as we grow, you know, I was just watching um, something, I think it was on the Today Show or something like that. And they talked about, you know, how the brain doesn't really, you know, mature until like you're like 30, you know, so I think that, you know, kind of just tracks, you know, and I know that's not the case for everybody, but, you know, I was always a person I really liked to have fun, you know, lived on the edge a bit. So, you know, I think that, um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you don't always lived on the edge a bit. So, you know, I think having kids and, 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 um, you know, and just being in that part of the journey, you know, it's been helpful for my growth. Can you talk a little bit about the, what you did before entering politics? Sure. Like what, what, um, kind of career did you have and what was, you know, what were you doing with your time? Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, I studied, you know, political science at IUP and, <clears throat> My first job out of college uh, was working in then uh, City Councilman Saluddin's office. Um, he's currently the president of the Pittsburgh School Board, um, and um, <coughs> and um, you know uh, that was really my my foray, um, you know, professionally into the political world. Uh, previous to that, I worked on Bill Bradley's presidential campaign in New Hampshire as a college student. So, you know, I always, you know, had an interest in politics. I studied political science at IUP. And um, so it was kind of like always, 
uh, you know, the direction I was going to go. I was in an org, uh, I was not an organization, but a program that was run by the organization Investing Now. Um, and it's a, a, um, a organization that, you know, is a kind of college prep program for African-American students from Pittsburgh. I don't know if it still exists, um, but I'll never forget um, Mrs. Uh, Leslie Horn, who ran the organization, um, you know, when you, you know, you, you get into it in eighth grade and like the second half of eighth grade, you get into it and then you go through it, you know, through your high school career. And, and the whole idea is, you know, to get you, um, you know, help get you into college. And I, uh, and I think I understand now that I think they had a special relationship with the engineering school. Um, and I remember you know, telling Mrs. Horn I was going to study politics in college. And she was like, you know, what are you going to do with that? Like, you should study, you know, something like engineering, accounting, you know, something that has like a direct job, you know, attached to it. And I was like, I don't know. I think I'm going to run for office or something like that. And I was like, as an 18-year-old kid, you know, um, so I think I always knew, you know, this was going to be my path, you know, but I had, you know, different you know, you know, experiences along the way that made me think that like maybe I'll go into lobbying or maybe I'll just be the wizard behind the curtain, you know, advising other folks. And I kind of settled into that, particularly, you know, being married, you know, to a politician. I always kind of thought I was going to be like the wizard, you know, behind the curtain. And then about this time last year, you know, I started to really think, you know, seriously about it after a conversation with Mary Ganey about it. And, um, and I really started to take it seriously. And, you know, it led to, you know, where I'm at today. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. I think, you know, the difference between you and the wizard of Oz is of course he, he's completely impotent, right? <laughs> That's the reveal is when, right. you, when you pull the curtain back, it's this small person with no abilities. Right. And you're, you're not that at all. Right? <laughs> no, nah, thank you. Thank you. No, I appreciate that. Um, you know, so maybe I need a new metaphor, but I, but I, I tend to, you know, uh, you know, uh, see myself as, you know, a wizard behind the curtain, a guy that, you know, helped other people get elected to office and, um, you know, uh, advise folks and, you know, be it like what they would call operative, um, you know, these days. And, uh, but yeah, I think that, um, you know, now almost a year into this journey, um, as a candidate and soon to be an office holder, you know, I, I definitely feel like this is where I'm supposed to be just from the energy and the response that I get from the people, you know, and me just being myself, you know, my campaign manager, Brandy Fisher, you know, always just says like, you know, I just love how you, you're always yourself and you just being yourself, you know, just always hits the spot. Like you always, you know, kind of have a sense for, you know, the right thing to say in the right moment. You know, we were recently, you know, at a very somber event. Um, in Homewood, uh, uh, a true pillar, um, you know, uh, to the community. Mrs. Wheaton uh, was assaulted, um, you know, physically and sexually. She's 83 years old, bedridden woman. Oh, my God. Um, and some, you know, really, really disturbed person, you know, perpetrated that. Um, I believe they're still at large. Oh, my God. Um, but the family uh, asked me to, like, to help them pull together a press conference. Um, you know, so we pulled it together. I helped write the press release and they asked me to speak, you know, at the event and, you know, my campaign manager was like, you know, you always just, you know, find the right words to say. And, you know, cause I, I try, you know, not to grandstand, you know, I try to have a lot of empathy. I've been through a lot in life, a lot of positives and a lot of negatives. And I think that brings a lot of perspective. 
you know, to life. So I think this is the right time, you know, for me to do this. I was with uh, former Mayor Peduto a few months ago, and um, that was somebody that I was very close with in the early 2000s. I was his political director and his spokesman uh, back at that time, and I was very involved with his first campaign uh, for mayor back in 2005. And he said, you know, you know, everybody says, you know, you should have did this 20 years ago. You know, when I was in my 20s and I was like, yeah, like, you know, I, I could have did that. But, you know, it probably would have went left at some point, you know, because even though sometimes you have the skills and the ability to do it, you know, I think you also just need the experience of life uh, to make the right decisions and not get caught up, you know, and, and you know, make the wrong decision that could be detrimental. So I, I feel like, you know, everybody's train runs on a different schedule. And some people like my wife can get elected to office when they're in their twenties. And for me, it just made it just makes a lot more sense for me to do it at this juncture in my life. Amazing. Yeah, I'm very excited for what comes next and for knowing someone on city council. I mean, frankly, it's pretty incredible Thank that you. there's somebody like you who I know from the hip hop community, somebody right. who I know because you're friends with Selecto, my favorite DJ in Pittsburgh, and right. somebody I've known for fifteen years. It's it's he's a friend of yours and somebody who you you've collaborated with musically. Right, right, right. right. We we got a we got a single dropping on November eighth. Amazing. Um, the day after the election, the single's gonna drop and very soon after that we're gonna be finishing up the album and dropping that before the holidays. Um so yeah, like, you know, I, I just try to be relatable, um, you know, and 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 um and just try to connect with people um, you know, in, in a real way and just be myself, you know. I think and, I, and that's why I think it's a good time because um I feel like if I did this ten or fifteen years ago, you know, I probably wouldn't have been able to incorporate hip hop as much into what I'm doing because I, I think hip hop didn't have that level of respect that it does now in its fiftieth year of existence. You know, I think there's a lot of um, you know, just broad acceptance of the art form. Um, you know, and I've, you know, uh, we did a, a fundraiser on my birthday, um, you know, where we performed five songs from the album that was very well received and, nice. um, at a Congresswoman summer lease reelection kickoff, I performed our lead single, bringing 88 back. And I just feel like, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, you know, I would be like, be really controversial. You know what I mean? I would like turn a lot of people off potentially. And now it's just like, you know. I feel like people actually get more excited about me rapping at events than like hearing my policies about community development, housing, and public safety. I saw uh, Vivek, uh, one of our presidential candidates, was doing uh, Eminem karaoke recently. Oh wow! Okay. So I mean, you're right. I think that the something's shifted, right? Right. The public perception of what hip hop is has has changed. It was this you know, violence, misogyny, negativity. Right. And now just look at Jay-Z, right? Right. He, he, you, you can change from being a drug dealer to being a mogul, a right. business person respected by everyone in the community, somebody who owns multiple businesses. And it's, right. it's incredible. And, and we need that, I think. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's inspirational, um, to folks from the community, and it allows us to connect, you know, with the younger generation. And you know, hip hop has grown up. You know, I mean, like, you know, you know, we're talking about, you know, like I'm 47, you know, and I'm, you know, definitely part of the hip hop generation. Um, you know, hip hop is three years older than me. Like, you know, I so saw I've been listening to hip hop since the early 80s. Uh, my older uh, cousin Arnie Pinnell and my brother Anere, 
um, you know, introduced me to hip hop. You know, they're like six and about 10 years older than me. So they were like already teenagers, you know, in the early 80s. Um, you know, and they, so they introduced me to hip hop, you know, and now, you know, so you figure, um, you know, those guys are well into their 50s, you know what I mean? So like hip hop has grown up and obviously, you know, it's taken a lot of different forms. You know, a lot of people feel some way about the modern version of hip hop, the trap music and stuff like that. But, you know, um, as far as classic hip hop, you know, which is my, you know, my particular interest, you know, classic hip hop from like the mid 80s to the mid 90s, um, you know, that's the type of music, you know, me and Selected do. Um, you know, and that's kind of just where, you know, we stay and I, I kind of liken it to like, you know, Wynton Marcellus, um, you know, doing, you know, kind of classic jazz music from like the fifties and sixties, even to this day, you know, it was like not trying to chase, you know, whatever current fad or trends, just, you know, just keep, you know, making the music that we grew up on, you know, and just kind of just, you know, reinventing it, um, you know, and kind of just looking at it, you know, in, in new and exciting ways, but really just kind of digging in, you know, to that very sample heavy, um, you know, classic golden hip-hop. era, right? The golden go- era. Exactly. That's it. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And that's what it sounds like. I mean, I, I think it, it sounds great. Is it select making the beats or no? Uh, so uh, like is it, in some ways, it's kind of a concept album. We have production from all over the world. We have folks like DJ ADS out of the UK, um, Enterprise from New Jersey. Um, uh, you know, we got a uh, um, Soul Dope out of California. Um, so we got like production from all over the world um, that I was able to procure beats. You know, there's a lot of, uh, um, you know, great online, uh, you know, uh, platforms that you can go and listen to beats, lease them or purchase them. Yeah. Um, I found out about this last night. No Casino was posting one of his beats. What's the name of the website? Uh, I use BeatStars.com. Hmm. His was different, but I saw that there were options that yeah. go all the way from just use the beat for thirty bucks, fifty bucks, to make it my own for five hundred. And right. it's what's the word for that? It's uh, exclusive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, you could get it for an exclusive deal, right? Where only you are able to rap over it forever. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So like BeatStars.com is the uh, platform that I use. I'm a member. It's like ten bucks a month. And like you said, you know, like you you can. You know, you can, um, like you said, for 30 bucks, you can just get the beat or for a higher price, you can actually get the stems Oh, so that you can rearrange, you oh, know what wow. I mean? You can rearrange the beat. And that's what I do. I, you know, I get the stems, um, you know, and they, and they just put it in the drop box, email it to you, or if you get it directly from the site, um, you know, as well. But like DJ ADS has like four beats on the album. I really like his sound. Um, he's out of Newcastle, England. We've gotten to know each other just through that, through the website, so we talk a lot, and I, I put up a snippet of uh, one of the songs that he did. Um, it's called Global Movement. We got a song called Global Movement that he did. I dropped a snippet of that on Instagram, and he, like, shot me a message, like, yo, it's dope, you know what I mean? And um, and I really like a lot of what um, the Europeans are doing with hip-hop right now. Like, they really... Uh, we got a beat from Finland. We got a beat from Germany. Uh, their names are escaping me right now, but... um, And, uh, you know, I really like you know, what the Europeans are doing. They, they're really, really into, like, the classic hip-hop sound with the samples. They kind of always have been, right? Yeah. It's a lot of rappers yeah. in America, like the R.A., the Rugged Man, right. and, like, the um, Master Cool Ace. Keiths and people like that who, um, like, and, and, like, a Big Daddy Kane and yeah. people who are, like, still making music, still um, rapping. 
will actually have to go to Europe in order right. to perform to get the love sure. that they're not getting in the States. Absolutely. Because I guess there's some kind of purity that that's respected in Europe that we don't we don't have that. Yeah, and I think it's been the same with jazz, you know what I mean? Obviously in Europe and Japan in particular, you know, classic jazz and jazz artists always went over there when people's tastes changed from like jazz to R&B and soul music, you know, in the, in the from the 60s to the 70s to the 80s, you know, they were going over to Europe and and in Japan. And I think it's the same thing with hip hop. You know, they they want to hear that classic sound. They want to hear what I consider real hip hip hop music, you know what I mean, as opposed to whatever the current trend is, which is more popular here in America. Were you interested in any of the other limbs or was it always MCing that appealed to you? Yeah, it was always MCing. You know, I had uh you know, my, my brother, Anere, um, used to make beats. And, um, you know, I had other friends that would dabble between rhyming and making beats and DJing and things like that. And I was always, you know, me, I was always an MC. You know, I think I get it. You know, my father, um, you know, before he was a sculptor, you know, was a writer. His degree from the University of Pittsburgh is English and journalism. So he was a writer. So I think I get that bug from him. So I always like to write, always like to read, you know, um, you know, always been a wordsmith, um, you know, so um, obviously now as a politician, I, you know, I give a lot of public addresses. So I think that's always been, you know, you know, a part of me in, in, in that, you know, part of the art form, you know, is always, um, you know, really uh, been more attractive to me than the other forms, even though I love beats, I love listening to beats, I love listening to music, but I never had a bug to like, I want to make beats. I just always, I always wanted to rhyme. What about preaching? No, uh, I like to, I, I enjoy a good sermon. You know what I mean? I, I definitely, uh, you know, uh, you know, I love, you know, uh, you know, the art of being an orator. Um, you know, I listen to speeches, you know, I've even, you know, I, I've been listening to some speeches lately, but, um, even as a younger person, you know, I, I, I came across like a CD, like when I was in college, it was like the greatest speeches of the 20th century, like those kind of things. And, you know, listen to Martin Luther King speeches and John F. Kennedy speeches and things like that. I've always had an interest in that. So that kind of oral tradition is obviously part of African-American culture. I've always been, you know, drawn to and obviously emceeing, you know, is just a part of that, that long tradition. So, you know, so I definitely, I'd never, I never had an interest in acts in, in like preaching. Um, but, you know, public speaking is something I've always done. Um, and obviously, you know, there's always a, there's a direct line to that as far as the art of emceeing. I was hoping that before we kind of talk about what you're going to do on city council and what city council is, because I think a lot of the people that sure. are listening to this probably have no idea kind of what what that job entails right. and, and how the city works and what the politics are and et cetera. But I wanted to ask you, maybe you could talk a little bit about your dad since you've brought him up a few times sure. and kind of what, what he meant to you, what he means to you and, and about his artwork. Cause I guess it's a pretty big deal. Yeah. 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 So my father is Thaddeus Mosley. Uh, he's a world renowned sculptor, uh, originally from Newcastle, Pennsylvania, but uh, you know, uh, it's been based in Pittsburgh, um, since the mid 1940s, when he came back uh, from his service in World War II, he came to Pittsburgh um, to go to Pitt on the GI Bill, and um, has lived in Pittsburgh ever since. And um, soon after that, um, you know, he made the transition as a sports writer for the Pittsburgh Courier uh, to becoming a sculptor, and you know, he worked at the post office 
for almost four decades as kind of his day job, but, um, you know, um, really got into wood sculpture and now is considered by many folks as like, you know, the greatest living sculptor in the world. Um, that's something that's kind of emerged over the last few years. He was always known locally. And then about five years ago, he was featured at the Carnegie International and there was a lot of, uh, international art critics that came and really were introduced to his work. And um, so he's been to Paris and he just had a show in uh, LA a few months ago and um, had a show in New York in March. And um, um, last November received the Noguchi Award, um, which is basically like, you know, like the Heisman Trophy, you know, for sculptors, you know, and he got that. Um, and, and Noguchi is one of his great influences. Um, so that was up in New York. At the at the Noguchi Museum in Queens, which is actually just a few blocks from Queens Bridge. Oh, cool! Um, yeah, the and, bridge is over. Yep, yeah, absolutely. But a bye bye. <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, and so he, you know, uh, you know, he's a very hardworking man, and you know, still working at the age of ninety seven, still producing art, um, still creating, and um, and this has always just been an example of you know, uh, the, the importance of, of finding a passion and embracing that passion, you know, um, and, 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 and the role that that can, that can play, you know, and not only transforming your life, but also giving life meaning, you know, he always says that, you know, he really makes the art for himself. Um, you know, he really doesn't make it for anybody else. Like the, the accolades and the, and the respect and the love and all that is great, but you know he really you know makes it because that's what he has to do. You know what I mean? He wakes up every morning and you know right now he's probably finishing up you know a day over at the studio. He goes there seven days a week and carves, and that's his sanctuary. You know what I mean? So I've just learned a lot about um, you know you know the the importance of consistency, um, the importance of discipline, um, you know the importance of having a passion. Um, and, you know, really, really diving into it and, and understanding that, um, you know, you may not become an overnight success, you know what I mean? But, you know, if you, if you, if you follow, you know, your, your, your North star, you know, whatever that is that eventually, you know, the world will recognize and also take care of yourself. Um, so, you know, I was never uh, a big uh, fitness person in my 20s and 30s but now in my 40s you know I run several times a week I ride my bike a lot amazing that's, that's part of to me you know his example of of being physically fit and taking care of yourself and giving yourself opportunity at longevity I wanted to talk about some like simple you know health tips too since I think a lot of your constituents and your I don't know if you have constituents yet your fans your <laughs> future constituents <laughs> right um will be people that'll be new to to me and right. you know I am a physician I feel right. like I should give them a few things here they are <laughs> um, but first that's incredible about your dad I have to say it reminds me a lot about you know my grandpa who came here to pit on the GI Bill um, Lou Goldzer and settled in the north side of Pittsburgh it reminds me of um, Rick Rubin and how he talks about making art that you like making art that you know makes that gets you excited to do it and whenever you're doing it for a specific audience to try to create a sound that somebody else has already made, you can never succeed. Right. You know, that's really, that's where you fall apart is when you escape what makes you happy and excited. And right. Yeah, that's so true. So, um, couple things that I wanted to, uh, bring up for the people. One exercise, just like you said, so crucial. I think 
if there's any one thing that can change the way that you feel, the way that your body works, the way that your health works for you, your mental health, and your risk of neurodegenerative disease, be it Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, or any of the other neurodegenerative diseases that I mm. see and treat on a day-to-day basis, exercise is it. And the reason for that is straightforward. It's simple. It's because cardiovascular fitness, so making your heart work more efficiently, will help your brain work more efficiently too. You have blood vessels in your brain right. and they're affected by atherosclerosis, which is a risk factor for every single one of those diseases. Mm. And so being heart healthy will make your brain healthy is the, is, is the bottom line. So absolutely exercise is crucial. From the diet perspective, I think the things that, that I believe in and that I, I think will help people are things like cooking at home rather than going to restaurants shopping on the outside of the grocery store where the coolers are and eating food that looks like food. Don't eat food with ingredients. Eat food that looks like actual food. Right. If that makes sense. Right. Um, so those are my those are my tips for the people. That's what's up. Thought I'd do a little public service <laughs> announcement. But I, I I have noticed, I mean you've lost like a good amount of weight with those changes too, right? I mean yeah, like the yeah. old photos you don't look right. skinny like this. this yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I was uh <laughs> When I was about forty-one, you know, I was, I was definitely like, like in the two forties, where I, I kind of, you know, generally lived wow. most of my twenties and thirties, like in the two thirties, two forties, and wow, and um, you know, I got myself down to, you know, where I'm at now. Like I usually hover between like one eighty and one ninety something. Amazing, um, amazing. It's just based on just biking, get on the bike, and or some dietary changes too. Well, dietary changes too. You know, I I uh, I discovered kombucha. Nice. Like to, like Love kombucha. Yeah, yeah. So I try to start the day with a kombucha. Do you make your own? I don't make my own yet. No. I no. grew up with a scovy mushroom in the fridge okay. in the in the garage. My mom is a huge hippie. I grew up on homeopathy, oh, wow. no vaccine. I mean, she was out there, and right. she had this mushroom in the fridge when I was growing up on the middle level in between two with a plate, and mm-hmm. then there was a mushroom in between two paper towels, and she would wow. make her own kombucha in wow. 1992. Wow. Wow. Yep. That's she, amazing. She got chickens in Michigan now. I'm wow. Trying to make my way back there. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, so, de- you know, definitely, um, you know, start my day with a kombucha. And, amazing. You know, and, uh, you know, I generally try to start my day with a kombucha, two hard-boiled eggs, and some fruit, you know, for, Incredible. you know, me as, a, as, as my breakfast, which is a total food, shift. Food that looks like food. Right, right, right. No ingredients. What are, what's the ingredient in an egg? Right. Right? What's right. the ingredient in a fruit? Right, exactly. Right, exactly. So I start, you know, start my day with that. I try to stay away from the stuff I really like. You know what I mean? Like I'm a big, <laughs> I'm a big bread person. I love bread, and uh, obviously bread is cool. But you know, I, I tend to eat too much of it if I'm not paying attention. You know, yeah. uh, I try to stay away from fried foods. I love fried foods, so I stay away from the you reason know. you eat too much bread. Right? It's this is actually relatively straightforward. It's nutritionally deficient. That's why bread is fortified with vitamins right, right why why are you eating something that has to be have thiamine added to it right it's like if it had nutritional value they wouldn't have to add anything right. to it right so the reason you're hungry when the reason you said i eat too much bread it's like yeah because it doesn't have any nutrition right so you just have to continue to eat right if you were eating something healthful like right. the like you know those original uh examples then you you'd be full right so good i love it i love it what about um, your, before we get into city council and plans and, and politics, um, about your uh, wife, the judge? Sure, sure. Yeah, my wife is a Chelsea Wagner, uh, former state legislator, former county controller, uh, 
newly minted uh, judge of the Court of Common Pleas. She's right now she's in the Adult Family Division, and um, yeah, our fifteenth anniversary is coming up in December. And, Amazing. Um, and yeah, like uh, you know, that was a very uh, you know uh, important um, you know chapter of my life. Meeting her and and, and connecting with her and, and falling in love and starting a family and um, you know. Um, you know, I learned a lot, um, you know, about the way things work in a political sense by, you know, being able to kind of have that, um, that bird's eye view of being a political spouse and, you know, learning about how things work in Harrisburg and learning about how county government works and, um, you know, and then just the, or the journey that we've kind of taken together, you know, I've been able to meet so many people and I think it's it's been unique for me as a first time candidate. Um, you know, I feel like I know so many more people than the typical first time candidate because of my own experience, but also, you know, being her spouse as well has gotten me in the rooms and into conversations and, and um and in the situations that I wouldn't have otherwise. So um, you know, I think we've been, you know, really, you know, um uh, valuable to each other. Um, professionally, but obviously, obviously spiritually, uh, and from a family perspective as well. But, you know, I know that, you know, my relationships, you know, were integral to her, you know, uh, kind of going beyond, you know, her base of the South Hills and becoming kind of a citywide regional political player and part of, you know, be, you know, be being from the North side of my relationships, obviously, you know, me, you know, being African-American, her being German and Irish, you know, we were able to kind of build, you know, this coalition of folks that generally, you know, wouldn't have known each other other than, you know, us two bringing folks together, you know, and, and it kind of, you know, continues to play out, you know, as we, as we go on our journeys. And, you know, like I said, I never thought, you know, that I would, you know, take the step that I'm taking, but, you know, it all seems like it was part of a much bigger plan as is now playing out. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to get invited someday to one of your house parties and just yeah. in, imagine who would show up. Like, right, right, right. What a great crew! You know, what a, what an amazing crowd that would be. Right, right. Yeah, no, we definitely had some. Uh, we haven't had as the as the boys have gotten a little bit older, and we have so many activities. Our boys are both very active in sports, so we haven't like had. And then obviously the pandemic hit as well. But yeah, no, we definitely have some. You know, really interesting. You know, um, you know, gatherings with you know just the 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 width and the depth um you know of of our of our uh shared relationships you know definitely is like you know a microcosm of pittsburgh i couldn't agree yeah exactly the word i was going to use and and what pittsburgh should be right is right. is we really do i think have work to do in regard to integration in in regards right. to getting communities together in regards to bringing back that melting pot feel of what the shadow lounge was right why can't we have places like like that where people can all kind of be together and under one roof experience learn from other people's perspectives gain from what they've been through and what their people have been through and right experiences like this right this is this is so dope to me right right yeah and i think that um i mean i think we just have to be intentional about it you know um you know, I think sometimes people think that it just happens, you know, by happenstance. But I think that, you know, it's really, you know, important for us to be really intentional. And that's something that I want to do um, as a soon-to-be public official, 
um, is not only focus on the importance of affordable housing and, and, um, you know, and, and, uh, and kind of, uh, you know, equitable, you know, development and, 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 and progressive public safety policy and, you know, and all those very important things, uh, as well as providing good services and being responsive and being visible and being accessible in the community. You know, I think we also need to, you know, have a, uh, a real focus on how do we, you know, really leverage, um, you know, the cultural treasures, you know what I mean, that we've had, we've inherited as Pittsburghers, you know, Pittsburgh, uh, I mentioned, you know, I had an event at my father's studio on Monday night. We had a fundraiser and I talked about uh, a quote that I heard recently uh, from um, Marimba Malayans, who's the executive director of the Hill Community Development Corporation. And she talked about how her organization, you know, punches above its weight. And, and I really, it really hit me in the heart because I feel as Pittsburgh's a city that's always punched above its weight. You know, when, when Pittsburgh's at its best, you know, it, it, it's punching above its weight. Um, and and this, for a city of its size, you know, for a city that, you know, never, you know, had, you know, African-American community um, that was, you know, in the millions or even in the high hundreds of thousands like Chicago or Baltimore, you know, or Philadelphia, you know, our influence... Um, you know, what we, you know, have contributed, um, you know, to American life as well as to, you know, internationally, you know, is far beyond, you know, um, the size of our community, you know, particularly the African-American community. We look at jazz or, you know, musically, culturally. And I feel as though um, not just in, in Pittsburgh black community, but, you know, across, you know, all of our ethnic communities, you know, we have you know, this, uh, this reservoir uh, of, of treasure um, that we don't tap into, you know, and I think from a public policy standpoint, I think it's very strategic for us to know that history and know how can we can tap into that um, to not only use it for tourism, use it for economic development, but also use it as a source of inspiration for the next generations of Pittsburghers to know that they really truly come from greatness. You know, it's not you know, just a, a cliche, you know, like if you're from Pittsburgh, you know, you come from greatness, you know, you come from a city um, that has contributed far beyond its size and, you know, has punched above its weight uh, for, for a very long time and has made a contribution, um, you know, not only to this city, but to this country, you know, and to the world you know, in a way that few cities have. I totally agree. It, you know, Ahmad Jamal, um, the give me the night um who's yeah georgie benson yeah george benson yeah um is george benson a black man yeah yeah, yeah from yeah. the hill district incredible yeah but here's the question you know i mean now wiz khalifa right what how can we remember i don't know i don't want to say we how is it possible to remember you're coming from greatness when the institutions and the markers that that recall that time of greatness are lost when right. the Syria mosque is demolished in 1991, 1992, where both of those artists played, where Charlie Parker played, where, you know, all of the jazz greats came when they came to Pittsburgh, they came there or they came to institutions in the Hill 
that are lost, that are no longer here, right. that were demolished to build the Mellon Arena or the, uh, you know, the new ho- hockey arena. But where are those markers of the greatness that that could be? And the only reason I bring it up is because I I think it's so important to preserve spaces and and real legitimate you know places and that's one one of the reasons that I contribute to an organization that does that work in Detroit called Detroit Sound Conservancy where they're saving United Sound System studios where Parliament Funkadelic recorded because up the street there's Motown and everybody's happy and that's Motown but there's another building where uh you know where Motown started where Tomla did its first pressing was right. actually up the street at United Sound Systems where the grass is overgrown in front because they're going to bulldoze it in order to put I-94. So the point is, how do we save these places? What are the people that are doing that work? And do you think it's important? Uh, one, absolutely, I do think it's important. And I think that, you know, understanding that many of these uh, buildings, you know, in the, as far as the built environment is concerned, some of these places don't exist, um, you know, but... I think it's very important for us to do the archival work um, to find, um, you know, uh, historical uh, relics um, that still exist from that time. Um, hearing, you know, stories, collecting stories of folks who are still alive, you know, you know, from that time. You know, my father still tells stories about the golden age of jazz and, and, and Pittsburgh's role in, in the golden age of jazz. And so we need to, you know, do that oral history you know, collect those stories, um, you know, collect, um, you know, what's, what still exists, you know, like I said, as far, you know, as memorabilia, you know, and stuff like that, you know, and then, you know, collect that in a way, you know, where we very intentionally, you know, begin to tell these stories and celebrate it, but then also build new, um, institutions, um, you know, that may not, you know, be at the specific place of where things happen, but build new institutions that celebrate that history, you know, and, 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 and rename streets and have honorary street renamings and have murals and, you know, and have, you know, these, these, these existing living markers, as you, as you, as you said, that to remind us on a daily basis, I think Philadelphia does a great job at it. I think, um, Detroit does a great job at it. Um, I'm having, you know, these beautiful murals and these beautiful markers and, and building new institutions uh, where the next generation of Pittsburghers, um, you know, can create, you know, and make their contributions. But with the perspective of understanding it's connected, you know, to the to the work that's come before, you know, and it's not like this new thing that we're doing something that Pittsburghers never did. And we're just so hip and so cool, but we're actually standing you know, on work that's that's come before us and, 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 and connecting to that and connecting what young people do today to what Ahmad Jamal did and what Phyllis Hyman did and what Billy Strayhorn did and what Billy Eckstein did, you know, in, in decades in the past or even, you know, more recently, you know, what Wiz Khalifa has been able to do and what, you know, Mac Miller did in his short time, you know, here and his incredible, you know, contribution to hip-hop, you know, and, and how all those, how the jazz and the soul and the R&B and, and the hip hop and all that, you know, it's part of a, you know, uh, uh, a much, you know, larger, you know, story of, of, of Pittsburgh and then how it connects to, you know, stuff outside of, you know, art and music as well. Yeah. August Wilson is the one that right. I think about immediately to connect. Yeah. Yeah. So the question is one, 
can you talk? It's kind of the second part. So the second part is, can you talk about how you can do that on city council? Sure. So what type of doors do you have to open in order to make those type of things happen? Meaning how to create spaces for people to be inspired rather than, you know, when you walk out of your door and you see, a, a, you know, closed shops, abandoned buildings, Hazelwood, Homewood, whatever, um, how that can lead to a cycle of poverty, a cycle of crime, because it's not inspiring. It doesn't, you know, you, you don't see greatness. You don't feel that kind of. Um, so number that's kind of the second part is what do you do on city council to inspire people using spaces and places? And number one, what does city council do? So I really think it's important that we first sure. answer this. So what is your job on November 8th when you wake up in the morning? What, what will you be doing? Sure. Uh, yeah. So, you know, what a city council person does is, uh, you know, city council uh, are the nine representatives of the nine legislative districts for the city. Uh, the city is divided into nine districts, and uh, those nine members serve as the legislative arm of, of city government. Um, you know, I, I try to tell people that, um, you know, you got to think about, you know, you know, city council is to the mayor what Congress is to the president. Um, you know, so we make laws. Uh, we pass the city budget. Um, you know, but besides, you know, the legislative role of creating laws, like recently has become uh, very controversial, it seems. Uh, you know, city council passed a law uh, banning plastic bags. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, yeah. And, and, and Good. Which, which created a 10 cent Good. Who, um, yeah. Who, charge if you want a bag. If you've ever driven along a highway and seen a hundred plastic bags on the side right. or those scratch off lotto tickets or cigarette butts, right. I mean, that's all trash is. Trash is plastic bags, single use plastics, right. whether it's a plastic bag or a bottle. Um, here, here, here we are drinking plastic. But not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I should have given you a, a glass cup. Um, yeah. Single use plastics scratch off lotto tickets and cigarette butts. I mean, that's what trash is, right? It's like, if we can do something to get rid of that. Right. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> like, let's do it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so absolutely. So, so, so the current iteration of city council passed, um, you know, that ordinance and that's the kind of things that, that city council does, but also, uh, provides what, what, what is called city services. So, um, you know, uh, the city council person uh, is the person that you call if you're uh, a builder or a homeowner that wants to put a deck on the back of your house and you want to get a, a permit, uh, you know, a building permit. You know, you might have to contact your city council person for that. You know, I'm not on city council yet, but I recently spoke at a zoning hearing in support of a uh, of a uh, of a religious organization taking over uh, a former Catholic rectory, um, um, to do their administrative um, social work uh, out of a building uh, in in Homewood, um, you know, and um, you know when the streets need to be cleaned, when the streets need to be sweeped after, um, you know, a, a snow event, um, you know, uh, plugging potholes fixing broken sidewalks, you know, all that, what I call the blocking and tackling, you know, a public service, um, you know, council members, you know, do that kind of stuff. But then, you know, in the spirit of, of you know, some of the things you talk about is, um, you know, we also do street renaming, you know, um, and, and taking famous people, um, you know, and we see like a honorary street renaming, you know, stuff like that. I think those are the things that we can do, um, 
You know, I think Philadelphia has, has always had a very impressive you know, mural program. You know, Morton Brown came from Philadelphia, you know, and brought, you know, that, that mural program here. I think those are the, the kinds of things, you know, that we can do. But then also working, you know, with developers and folks with good ideas. So like, how can we create more spaces, um, you know, using, you know, city policy and, and city planning, you know, resources to create spaces for folks to create, create spaces for folks can gather. You know, I, I, I talked about a lot during the campaign, the importance of public spaces and green spaces, you know, and things like that, that bring people together, but also not only use them to bring people together, but also use them to celebrate and commemorate those who come before us. So it serves a dual purpose of not only creating spaces for folks to come together and enjoy um, life and enjoy, you know, city living, but also spaces that could also remind folks of the past and where they came from and, you know, the greatness of the, of the shoulders that we stand on. Absolutely. So where does the money come from? I'm, I'm mostly, in, I think the finance piece is the most interesting. So sure. you're, you're both, like you said, you're Congress. So you're both Senate and you're the house. Right. So you write the laws and you control the money. So right. you have the budget of the city of Pittsburgh. So what is the budget of the city of Pittsburgh? So how much are we talking and yeah. where does it come from? What's the input? Right. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're talking about $600 million annually. Um, and uh, obviously the money comes from stuff like property taxes, um, occupational tax that we pay. You know, I think everybody pays like, I don't know, like $50 a year or like 150 a year. I forget the exact, you know, number. You know, that's where money comes from, but also money, uh, you know, comes from the county, the state, the federal government. Uh, the money could also come from grants. Um, government grants as well as philanthropic grants, um, you know, as, as more and more partnerships, um, you know, between philanthropic groups and cities, you know, so there's a variety, you know, of, of places um, that, that the funds come from. I mean, we just have to be uh, creative, um, you know, because I think that, you know, particularly given the philanthropic community in Pittsburgh, I think there's a lot more opportunities for um for cities and, and philanthropic organizations to work together as well as public private partnerships working with the uh, business community and our local corporations you know we have you know some um really powerful players here whether it's upmc allegheny health network and then we have you know uh newer um corporations that are growing exponentially here and nationally like google's presence in Pittsburgh, Duolingo, you know, and companies like that. And I think we Gecko just, Robotics. Right. Shout out Gecko Robotics and all the people who are doing artificial intelligence and robotics work in this field. I'm right. really excited to get one of those CEOs on here. I think it's going to be awesome to hear about but how that comes out of Carnegie Mellon and we get these startup businesses right. along the Monongahela right where the steel mills were. Right. How cool is that yeah. to see? And I mean, and we need to invest in that and we need to, uh, you know, really champion that. One of the things that I've I talked about a lot, you know, you know, on the campaign trail, and I spoke with the chief of staff to the chancellor of, of, of Carnegie Mellon about how we can work together more closely and use, um, you know, that 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 intellectual um, know-how that comes out of places like CMU, but not only CMU, but just using CMU as an example, you know, how can we, you know, f use, you know, that know-how to figure out how do we, how can we can provide city services better, more efficiently using technology, you know, working with Google, 
you know, working with Sheets IT, uh, that's also based in my, my district, you know, we're all of the technological uh, advancements that Sheets is doing, you know, is coming out of East Liberty, um, you know, right beside Google. And, you know, how to, how do how can we, how can we, you know, even do some pilot projects or do some things. And I mentioned that to the chief of staff, to the chancellor of, of CMU. And she's like, wow, like no one's ever mentioned stuff like that. So those are the kinds of things that I think about is really, really um, intentionally and deliberately, you know, putting all the assets that we have to bear uh, really to move the city forward and, and connect all these pieces. Cause I think that, you know, people complain about, you know, elements of city services, how some of the stuff is very archaic. And I say, well, if we have Google and Carnegie Mellon, some of the leading technological minds in the world, you know, how can we create partnerships with them to bring that know-how into city government so that we can provide better services for the citizens? Yeah, I, I was driving down Fifth Avenue yesterday and a driverless car passed me. Right. You know, from CMU. So it's like, if we have that, how can we still have... I don't know, maybe, what's a good example? Like how people were getting towed also in East Liberty for the Bloomfield uh, Halloween party. Right. But why why can't we have some kind of digital system that notifies people that your car's about to get towed, like a text right. message that goes to your phone or something? I don't know. That, that's just like one example. But yeah, we could be more technological. We could, we could you know, we could be more tech savvy as a city, something like that. Sure. Um. So, so what are the, priorities what what comes first in terms of what you want to get done my understanding is there's each city council person has a district so you would be responsible for where you live point right. breeze but then also for the rest of the east end or parts of the east end yeah parts of the east end you know pretty much like the northern uh portion of the of the uh like the the, the northernmost easternmost portion um you know so the uh the areas that fall into District 9 are Garfield, uh, parts of Staten Heights, parts of Friendship, uh, the entire East Liberty, uh, the entire Larmer, the entire Lincoln Leamington, the entire Homewood, the entire East Hills, um, the entirety of Point Breeze, um, Park Place, and a little piece of Regent Square. Um, you know, it's essentially, you know, District 9. So it's very diverse, um, you know, has communities that are very wealthy, you know, have communities that have a lot of challenges um, and, um, you know, and everything, you know, in between. And um, so I'm excited, you know, about the opportunities um, that we have uh, with improving, you know, the quality of life in all the neighborhoods, um, you know, and, and you know, so, um, you know, those are the, the neighborhoods. And, you know, I'm really excited. You know, I've, I've lived in North Point Breeze uh, for the last 12 years and um you know we really become a part of the community and you know we really you know as a family you know really love the community and i'm really honored that uh they chose a north sider you know as as we as pittsburghers we could tend to be very territorial but they gave me a pass um and not only my north side i'm a north sider that went to perry which is like a double whammy particularly with the with the, with the westinghouse bulldog nation um, they're not big fans of Northsiders from Perry, but they, they've accepted me with open arms. And, um, you know, I really look forward to working with those folks. I even I even passed out um, state runner-up jackets uh, at the at the Westinghouse um, celebration earlier this year. So it shows, you know, how far I've come, you know, as a Perry Commodore. If somebody would have told me I'd be doing that, you know, one day I wouldn't believe them. That's amazing. Were you playing 
basketball and and baseball the sports that you're coaching now or um i i i, I played basketball at perry and um i did one year of baseball um and uh wish i would have stuck with baseball baseball was my better sport but um you know basketball always you know got more attention and, and we won the state championship my freshman year um so that was also like a, a big factor in motivating me to kind of focus on basketball but if i you know could talk to my my teenage self if i can go back 30 some years into the 90s i would i would say like you gotta you gotta stick with third base man that's Wow, that's your stick. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I was I was a heck of a third baseman. I was a, and I had a high, very high on base percentage. Had a good eye. I didn't have a lot of power, but I was a good contact hitter. Yeah, yeah, and must have had a cannon to play third base. Yeah, yeah. I always had a strong arm wow. for my size. Yeah. You know, I'm only five nine, and um, and uh, but I always had a very strong arm. You know, I could throw football. You know, fifty, sixty yards when I was younger, hmm. and I would have, I probably would have played more football. You know, but I had a you know a very serious neck injury when I was a baby, and um, so I couldn't, I could never uh, pass the physical. Oh wow! Yeah, fascinating. So, what are the biggest challenges that you see for Ninth District, and then for Pittsburgh? Sure, uh, I think you know for District Nine, I think the biggest challenges you know are figuring out you know how do we you know develop. Um, you know, the neighborhoods in the district that are ripe for development um, without displacing people, you know, without, you know, uh, inflicting, you know, the harm that development sometimes inflicts on neighborhoods, you know, when communities don't have a voice in the process and developments are created where, you know, home prices, you know, go through the roof and, and folks can no longer afford to live in the neighborhood they lived in, you know, for decades. So I think that's, you know, the biggest challenge we have in trying to figure out how do we how do we thread this needle of bringing needed development into the community, but not having a negative impact on the existing residents where it actually becomes an asset and something that one not only they have a voice in, but they can participate in. Um, and then and then the, and then the final product, you know, actually benefits not only the newer residents that are uh, ultimately going to come into the community, you know, but also benefits the longtime residents and they feel like they're a part of it. And it was something positive that happened to the community as opposed to a negative experience. What about for the city of Pittsburgh? You know, I, th I think for the city of, uh, as a whole, I think the biggest challenge is, you know, like figuring out how can we um, kind of foster the kind of growth that we've seen, um, you know, in cities, some of the cities in the Midwest, but particularly in the um, in the Pacific Northwest, cities like Portland, cities like Seattle, um, but places like the Twin Cities, you know, places that are growing. Like, you know, how do we grow? You know, we're a city of three hundred thousand um, in in a city that's built for seven hundred thousand people, um, and you know, we've lost a tremendous amount of people since the. Uh, the loss of the steel industry, you know, and currently for the first time in decades, we're not losing people, um, but we're kind of staying static um, as, as uh, the, 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 you know, um, who's left from the World War II generation and then the baby boomers, you know, as they pass on, um, 
you know, we are having this this kind of phenomenon of we're not actually losing people because we have a lot of young people coming in, but we're also losing because we're a city that used to be a very old city up until very recently, you know, probably from like the 80s or 90s until about less than 10 years ago, it was a very old city. And now it's becoming a very young city. Um, so while the population, the population numbers aren't changing, the population demographics are changing significantly. So we basically have the same amount of people we've had for the last five years, but it's like old, older people being replaced by younger people, but we need more of an influx of, of, of young people and folks from all over the world, you know, uh, a much more diverse, uh, you know, uh, um, cadre of like immigrants from all over the world. I mean, I think it is exciting that, you know, our Latino community is growing. You know, our East Asian community is growing. Our South Asian uh, community is growing. Um, you know, our our, uh, our African community is growing. You know, all these communities are growing. And we're probably the last big, great American city to have this influx. Most of these cities have, you know, had this influx between, like, the 40s and the 50s and, like, the 80s and 90s. And, you know, we're the, probably the last major American city to really experience it. And I think it's good for the city to figure out how do we manage that growth, um, you know, um, and and um, and and look to, you know, 20, 30, 40 years out, you know, what is Pittsburgh going to be, you know, 20, 40 years from now? And, and how do we build infrastructure? You know, I would like to see, you know, a huge investment in transportation to really modernize our region's public transportation system, connect the airport, you know, with the other uh, centers of commerce. There's nothing worse than the 28X. Right. I mean, it's truly, like, the right. thing just goes right past you. And if you go on Reddit and look at all the negative comments about it, oh, wow. it's unbelievable. Yeah. And it's, you know, everybody has had the same experience as me, where you go down to Station Square, you stand there with your bags, and one bus after another passes you by. Right. You can stand in the middle of the street and wave your hand, and he'll just right. skirt wow. right by you. Yeah, I, mean, I, was, I haven't caught the 28X in a while, but um, it's not... You know, it's definitely not the best way in the country to get from an airport to a city. No, you know, no. there's there's many many other cities, and I, and I and I think that you know those are the things that you know are challenges we have to overcome. I think we have to think big, you know, and I, and I think we you know have to be bold, you know, thinking about the next twenty five thirty years of how do we really build, you know, a transportation system. Um, that befits the greatness of the city. I, I don't think a city can be great without a great, you know, public transportation network. And 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 I think that we, you know, we were we were a city of rail, you know, prior to the establishment of Port Authority, and they tore up all the trolley tracks. And I'm not saying that we need to go back to the trolleys, but you know, we had the infrastructure in place, you know, and what you know connected a city that that does have many, you know, physical obstacles between the rivers and the valleys and the hills and things like that, you know, we're not like Detroit where we're like just this flat city. Um, you know, we were, you know, we're, you know, very much, um, you know, like a mountainous, you know, city somewhere in Europe, but I think that's part of the beauty. But I think that, you know, we, we can invest in a transportation system that's modern, that gets people around that also connects neighborhoods and, and connects areas of interest um, areas of commerce, you know, in a way that would, I think, be transformational, 
you know, for the future. And you talk about we, we need to invest. I would argue the money's already there. Right. We need to spend it more intelligently. Right. Because last year when I got here, two years ago when I got here, they were changing the name. I, I, every library in Pittsburgh had somebody with these pamphlets and brochures about how they were changing the name of Pittsburgh Transit. Right. And they were repainting every bus. Now, I might be, you know, I don't know. This might be crazy, but does that seem like the most efficient use of the funds? How much does it cost to paint a city bus? I mean, I get it. We want things to be beautiful in, in the city. Absolutely. Right. Was it that important to change the name? Right. I, I, I just think we need to be smarter about the way we purpose the funds sure. that we already have. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we have to, you know, also do the right reforms. I mean, I've for a long time, I've been a proponent, you know, for a more regional trans- transportation system, um, similar to what they have in southeastern Pennsylvania, um, you know, where it's not, where each county doesn't have their own transit system. You know, when you're in the greater Philadelphia region, um, it's southeastern Pennsylvania Transit Authority. And um, I think it's like at least six or seven counties all have the same, you know, so you get on a bus or you get on the train um, in Montgomery County in Norristown, like you get on SEPTA, you ride the SEPTA train from downtown Norristown to downtown Philadelphia. Um, I would like to see us eventually move to that so we don't have Allegheny County Transit and Westmoreland County and Beaver County and have a more of a regional model where the nine county region can work together and pull those resources so that someone um, has a much uh, di- more direct connection between the county seat in Beaver County and the county seat in Indiana County and the county seat in Westmoreland County, which is Greensburg, um, you know, so that folks um, can have more efficient commutes and, and, and such. You know, um, you know, someone should be able to get on a train in downtown Greensburg and be in Pittsburgh in 45 minutes as opposed to you know, trying to drive, you know, on the turnpike to 376 and sit in traffic. Think about how much better it would be for my patients that are driving here with chronic medical conditions, having to pay for transport to come to UPMC to get the care that they want. I have a lot of patients that live in Greensburg. And yeah, absolutely. We need to be more connected. Is it the, is the issue that these institutions were privatized during the Sophie Masloff era that, Institutions like Phipps Conservatory, um, uh, um, the zoo, you know, all of these institutions that were made private in the 90s, was one of that the transportation? Is that the problem, that we need more centralization, if that makes sense? Um, I mean, I think more centralization is needed. I think think it's just there's a natural uh, cultural fragmentation in this region. You know, uh, Allegheny County is the most fragmented county in the country. Um, you know, you know, I was just sharing, you know, at an event, you know, um, Allegheny County has more school districts than the entire state of Maryland, uh, almost twice as many. Um, there's 25 school districts in Maryland. There's 43 school districts in Allegheny County. Um, so I think this is a natural um, propensity um, to fragment you know, here. And I think that's something over time, I think over the course of this century, I think we're going to have to reverse uh, through good public policy, you know, and say like, you know, it doesn't make sense. You know, there's an old joke that, that, that they say was uh, told at the Allegheny County Police Chiefs Association one time. They had a, 
a national speaker come in. And the national speaker said, you know, the biggest problem with the Allegheny County Police Chiefs Association is that there's a county that has so many police departments that it has a police chiefs association of its own. <laughs> um, and, I, and I think that, you know, yes. it's that mentality, you know, that fragmented, you know, mentality where every two miles you're in a different jurisdiction and the amount of duplication of services that happens, 130 mayors, you know, 130 police chiefs, 130 treasurers, 130, you know, council presidents, you know, uh, and I'm not saying we need to totally wipe out them all, you know, but, you know, like, you, you know, I'm, you know, on my, on, on my jobs when I, you know, go a little bit further than my normal three mile route and I run out of my house in Point Breeze, um, you know, actually a couple of weeks ago, you know, I went on this run, you know, I went out, ran out of my house and within the, my four mile route, of running, I ran, you know, from Point Breeze into Homewood, which is both the city of Pittsburgh, and then worked my way into Wilkinsburg, and then over into Edgewood, Regent Square, Swissvale, and then back, you know, into Park Place and Point Breeze, all within like a four-mile loop from my house. That's five municipalities. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. You know, to have that much fragmentation and that much duplication of services in such a small area. So consolidation. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's something that we have to look at. You know, I'm not saying that, you know, the city and the county need to be one, you know, political unit. But, you know, there has to be some form, you know, of, of, of consolidation at some point. Um, just because it's just, it's just we, I think we just waste millions and millions of dollars, um, you know, with the amount of uh, fragmentation that we have. Like I said, you know, we have almost twice as many school districts in one county than, than exists in the entire state of Maryland, which is insane. And yet, when I go up the street, you, you and I can walk out after the episode, and you go up uh, four doors down to the right, our fire department only has one employee, and even he's a volunteer. <laughs> the right. whole thing is run by volunteers. I asked him how what happens if we have a fire in our house. He goes, well, I get on my phone, I have this app, and I can call the different people that have to show up. Wow. There's a special app that notifies them, and then their phone will ring, you know, or it has like a special beeper on it. I mean, what if they don't notice it? I, I just, it just seems wild to me that a, you know, part of the city, because it's technically part of the city, there's volunteers, volunteer fire departments. Right. But I mean, I, maybe, like you said, it's just a consolidation thing. There just needs to be, some unification and consolidation get get things tightened up what else needs to be cleaned up so what what other projects are on the on the docket i mean definitely you know infrastructure is a huge issue um like like we've talked about transportation um you know it's you know very important you know for us to you know invest in a, in a modern transportation system for the region um it obviously includes public transit um, but also, you know, other modes of transit, biking, but also making things more pedestrian friendly as well. Yeah, you know, I think that's something that we've learned in the last 20 years of public policy is the importance of uh, having things at pedestrian scale and making things more walkable after kind of in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s, falling in love with the automobile and, and, and really designing things, you know, for 
um, automobile use and not for, you know, human use. Um, cause we don't do things in our cars, you know, other than get to places. And once we get there, it has to be, you know, the built environment has to be conducive to walking, you know, and, and, you know, and that kind of stuff. So that's very important. You know, obviously public safety, you know, uh, coming out of the pandemic, trying to understand, you know, how do we make community safer, you know, without going back to the playbook of the 1990s, we'll lock everybody up and, you know, really aggressive, you know, uh, draconian, you know, policing styles um, that really, you know, are, um, had a negative impact that still felt in a lot of neighborhoods and communities throughout the country. But figuring out how do we, you know, hold wrongdoers accountable, you know, but do so in a way, you know, where we're not, you know, over-policing, you know, and we're not, um, you know, having, you know, just uh, a detrimental impact, you know, on neighborhoods, you know, in, in the name of having, you know, just all these, you know, other negative, um, you know, elements um, in the name of trying to make streets safe. I think there's a, I think there's a sweet spot. I think there's a needle that we can thread, you know, where we make the streets safer, but also do it in a more equitable, um, humane way. Yeah. I want to talk about crime a lot. Uh, first you mentioned about the pedestrian friendly areas. There's a movement on Reddit also Reddit Pittsburgh, shout out Reddit Pittsburgh, um, to pedestrianize multiple streets in Pittsburgh. I want to know what you think about it. Walnut in Shadyside. I think it's a must. That mm-hmm. one to me has the strongest use case. First of all, you can't drive. It's stopped. It's completely stopped the entire way. There's right. just no reason to have cars on, on the street. Second one that we, people were arguing for was Potomac right here in Dormont. Mm. I thought it would be fantastic. It's already got the beautiful brick pavers. Right. Just close it down. Just like we do when we have our block party. Right. Just make it permanent. Right. <laughs> right? right. And I think that your point about making the streets more pedestrian friendly will definitely... Um, you know, especially once more self-driving cars, more and more Uber and Lyft, more and more ride share, you know, less and less people owning cars, right? Better public transit, more ride share, more, um, you know, biking and, and uh, these kind of alternatives to car ownership. I just think it's going to get bigger and bigger as, sure. as this transition to clean infrastructure, clean transit um, takes over. We just have to be ready for it, right? Right, right. Are you a fan? Do you would you pedestrianize? Yeah, I'm definitely. I would definitely, uh, you know, be willing to like look into it, or even, you know, uh, you know, having even the kind of like how they do like on the bridges going toward PNC Park. Does it have specific times where, like, you know, after five o'clock, you know, particularly on like Thursday, Fridays, and Saturdays you know, making it walkable, you know what I mean? I think that, I think there would be a need to do some traffic studies and see what the impact, you know, would be. But I, you know, um, you know, I, one thing I think that works, you know, for Walnut Street, the fact like there's no parking on Walnut Street, you know, um, or very little. I think there's, I think, I guess the the block um, uh, up near like Henny Jewelers and that, that part, I think beyond Copeland, and, you know, as you go toward, uh, like, the PNC Bank and all that stuff, I think there might be a, uh, some some on-street parking. But I think there I think there could even be portions, you know, as you, um, I forget which street that is, but once you get the get past the PNC Bank into the, the, the heart of the Walnut Street Business District, I think there definitely 
is a strong argument for it. This is good. So crime question. Um, I mean, house party last year, Airbnb, two people murdered, mm-hmm. 20 some people shot, I believe. Completely unsolved cold case. I mean, the uh, 70 plus people murdered in Pittsburgh last year. Highest number in a decade. Um, it's been better this year. I believe the homicide statistics are better this year, but it's obviously a huge problem. Um, you know, you can just go to the South side, um, and you can feel it. There's, you know, it's, it doesn't feel as safe as it did a decade ago or or 20 years ago when I was here. So what's the problem? What do you see as the solution? Yeah, but I think part of it is, you know, a national trend that we saw, you know, coming out of, you know, the pandemic, um, you know, where, where crime, you know, violent crime has increased. I think part of it is, is you know, the desperation that, that, uh, that, that some folks, particularly younger adults and teenagers, you know, are grappling with, um, you know, coming out of this kind of once in a century event, um, but also I think that, you know, from a government standpoint, you know, I think it just requires us um, to do better um, coordination uh, between uh, the important, you know, players, you know, when it comes to, you know, public safety and, 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 and law enforcement um, and, and community health and safety in general. Um, you know, I've been saying a lot on the campaign trail. Uh, that we really need to coordinate, um, you know, not only what we do from a law enforcement perspective, you know, with community, but also, you know, coordinate a whole range of services um, that address uh, the root causes of of so much of this activity, uh, whether it's food insecurity, whether it's poverty, uh, whether it's mental health issues, uh, whether it's uh, employment issues, um, you know, all these different things, you know, I think all those players need to be at that table. So when we talk about crime prevention and public safety, to me, that to me, like that's the coalition at the table. It's not, you know, just, um, you know, the folks that show up at the zone public safety meeting, um, you know, uh, in just a conversation with your local commander or the local police station. It's like, oh, you know, you guys figure it out. I think it's a, I think it's a community-wide thing that we all have to step up and participate in, and understand that the specific role, and this includes like the youth-serving organizations. Um, you know, I think that I think that has played a role. Um, the the Ganey administration's focus on more uh, activities for young people, the rec centers, uh, reopening, and um, and 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 the stop the violence uh, funding that's been given to grassroots organizations for them to do their work. So bringing them to the table and not just saying this is a police issue, you know, it's a community-wide issue and there's actually folks in the community that can play an active role in crime prevention. You know, I know folks who've taken guns out of children's hands and young people's hands in doing the direct violence intervention work like the organization like REACH or organization like Mad Dads. And I think we just need to coordinate, you know, uh, more strategically, you know, and bring those folks to the table on the front end um, and not just look at them, you know, as a side card to the conversation, but actually a central player in this and, and, and as important as, 
you know, the Pittsburgh police is, you know, in, in, in addressing these issues. And I think more and more people, you know, are seeing, um, you know, these kinds of uh, nonprofit organizations, you know, as equal players, you know, in this collective effort, you know, to make our communities more safe. I, I totally agree. I think it starts so early. I, um, you know, what is it? Idle hands or the devil's playground, right. right? You have to give people something to do, something to inspire them. Otherwise they're going to choose crime. They're going to choose, you know, make bad decisions, drugs and, 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 uh, violence. And I think it starts in the home. You know, that's the reason that I think we have succeeded and, and avoided that path is because we had, you know, role models in right. the home who, who, um, you know, showed us the way to, to be, exactly. showed us the way to, to be responsible people. And so um, that's the work that I think is so important. That's why I was so excited when I saw Dolly Parton uh, finally approved Pittsburgh as a site for books, right? right. So reading to your children is critical. Right. Give people uh, that initial experience of, you know, intellectual curiosity is important. Education Absolutely. is critical. And so... Um, you know, make people excited about something other than um, the, you know, that, that cycle of negativity and you can change the world. Absolutely. But also, I guess, being an example, right, of like, you know, of upright living, that seems important as well. Um, that's awesome. Good. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm glad to hear about that. What about uh, One Hood Media? I have to ask about uh, Jasiri and, sure. and um, the work that you've done there. Yeah, so um, I'm actually one of the founding members, you know, of One Hood way back in the day, like, you know, 15, 16 years ago, you know, it kind of started um, through uh, some work that I connected uh, to Siri and Cornell Jones in particular to uh, Luke Monsalam, you know, was a part of that as well. Um, I was a part of an uh, organization called The Gathering that Jasiri ended up getting, you know, more involved with you know, as time went on, but uh, I was kind of the initial um, plug uh, from Pittsburgh into the organization. It was an organization that was started by Harry Belafonte and um, and my really good friend who now lives in Boston, Malia Lazu, uh, was in New York at the time. And um, she was chosen by Harry Belafonte to run this organization to kind of create a network of young uh, organizers and leaders from around the country. Uh, so, particularly with a focus on um, on reducing um, youth incarceration. That was kind of like the initial thing that it that started out of it and um, it was uh, initially convened um, at, a, at, a, at a at a gathering in Epps, Alabama um, convened by Harry Belafonte and um, rest in peace he just passed right yeah he just passed yeah, yeah not he, too long ago. yeah earlier this year yes, and um, and we went from Epps, Alabama to Onondaga Nation up near Syracuse, New York, uh, met with the Iroquois uh, Nation, um, Chief Oren Lyon. Um, and then we went out to um, San Jose, California and met with uh, uh, Barrios Unidos. Um, and um, and it, it was a powerful thing of bringing you know, so folks from Pittsburgh to be a part of this larger coalition. And um, and we ended up having a gathering in Pittsburgh, not under the gathering, but it was through uh, the League of Young Voters, which I was a part of. Um, and we had a meeting over at the mosque in Wilkinsburg. And, um, and 
and there was some other folks from around the country, like Biko Baker from Milwaukee, uh, Kwabana, Nixon, Muhib Dair from Milwaukee, and some other folks were all part of this initial conversation. And I was really, through that conversation, you know, One Hood was born. And it was really just a coalition of, uh, you know, local uh, young leaders, um, you know, really focused on wanting to have an impact on the community. And it really evolved, you know, into this thing that's become 16 years later. And, um, you know, I was, you know, really involved in the beginning. And then uh, I moved from national work to local work in the environmental space. Um, and so I wasn't as involved. And then when I left the Blue Green Alliance in 2019, I uh, I rejoined, you know, One Hood as a civic engagement director. And that's what I've been doing, you know, since 2019. Um, so, uh, um, so I have a long history, you know, with One Hood. But like I said, it was probably like a decade in between. I wasn't as involved, but starting in 2019, I got back involved with the charge of building, um, you know, the, the political arm of One Hood. You know, they always did like a lot of grassroots work, social justice work, and obviously intersecting that work with the arts. But one thing they didn't do was like civic engagement work around voting in politics. And they had got um, a phone call from a philanthropic group that wanted to give them some money to do it. And I just happened to be leaving, you know, my job um, at, at the Blue Green Alliance. And it just happened to coincide with the timing, um, you know, if Shashiri would have called me a, a month prior, you know, it wouldn't have worked. He just happened to call me like, um, you know, the Monday after I found out, you know, that the Pennsylvania's funding for the Blue Green Alliance had ran out and and that was pretty much that. So I didn't know what I was gonna do. And then I get a call on Monday about uh, One Hood having some resources to start a political, um, you know, arm to the organization, which, eventually grew into One Hood Power, which is the 501c4 arm of, of One Hood that does the advocacy and lobbying work. So um, it's been quite a journey. Incredible. You talked about the initial purpose was uh, to prevent youth incarceration. Right. Are you aware of the issues with Allegheny County Jail related to deaths in custody? Right. And is that a priority? And how will we clean it up? This is related to this event, the deaths in custody event that I went to at Trace Brewery, Brewery and also all of the work that's happened with multiple different investigative journalists. I think um, Brittany is the name of one of right. them. Brittany um, Heller. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I'm really, really amazing and courageous people who've been right. um, working really hard to kind of uncover this story against all odds, right? With limited access to public information, winning court cases in order to ex expose what the details are of the problem. And, um, and I've just, uh, I've, I've been really, you know, impassioned about this issue. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, it's something I have been following um, before my wife became um, a judge of the Court of Common Pleas. She was the county controller, um, which by statute um, provides a seat on the jail oversight board. Um, so my wife was uh, a, a strong advocate, um, you know, on the oversight board and pushing back on a lot of things that, you know, Bethany Hallam and other folks who've been very... Uh, um, open um, about their frustration about how things are done in the jail. So Bethany Hallam and some other folks have kind of picked up where my wife uh, left off at, you know, over her decade of time 
as a controller and 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 on the the jail oversight board and and um you know I kind of so I kind of had a you know a bird's eye view you know of that as well as you know um concerns and frustrations over you know the closing of Schumann Center and the impact of of having young folks either getting shipped off to Jefferson County in, in, in Ohio and some other places or, you know, being housed, you know, in the county jail, um, juveniles, um, you know, that's a huge issue, you know, as well. You know, obviously that falls within, you know, the realm of county government, but I think it's important um, to use our platform as members of city council um, to, to share our, our discontent, you know, with how things are happening as well as to help find solutions um, you know, to how we can, you know, have, a, you know, a more humane, you know, way of dealing, you know, with folks who are being held accountable uh, for the mistakes that they make, uh, but also do so where um, it doesn't become, you know, uh, you know, a death sentence. Um, Most of these people that are in the Allegheny County Jail haven't had a trial. Exactly. So being held accountable for the mistakes they've made or the mistakes that they are yet to be accused of making. Right, I mean, exactly. Is, you know, uh, yeah. So obviously that's, that's great that you see that, that you're aware of that and see that. Yeah. Um, you've done so much. I'm very respectful <laughs> of your time. It's Thank you. unbelievable. I mean, it's really, really exciting to hear your story and to hear how passionate you are and, and really all of your wisdom that you've gained over these years working with all these amazing people. And thank um, you. It's, it is so cool to, to call you a friend and to note you. I'm really, really, really happy Absolutely. about this. This is awesome. What, what have you been most proud of that you've done? Wow, that's a good question. Um, I would say it, in my life, I would say the thing I'm probably most proud about is, uh, is you know, the responsibility I took on to take care of my mother, um, you know, before she passed. Um, my mother um, passed away about eight years ago, and she suffered uh, from paranoid schizophrenia the vast majority of her adult life. And... Um, the vast majority of my adult life, uh, I was her primary caretaker from the time I was about 19, 20 years old. So when she passed away, I was about 39 when she passed away. That was about seven, eight years ago. Um, and, 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 you know, and just being with her for that journey, uh, I came home from, I believe, my junior year of college. And my mother was homeless, living in West Park on the north side. And that's kind of began, you know, our journey together to kind of get her back on her feet. And, um, and it was a lot of ups and downs, a lot of challenges. And, um, she lived with me for a very long time, you know, when I was a bachelor, uh, in my twenties and early thirties before I, until I got married and then we put her in a personal care home. But, you know, the pretty much all my twenties, um, after coming home, like even when I was still in college, I put her up into, in an apartment, um, that was like around the corner from my dad's house. And just so I knew she had a place and then. Um, when I finished school and came home, um, a year or two into that, well, she had a big fire in her apartment. Actually, it was strange. Uh, on Mother's Day, uh, her the fire started in her apartment because um, she was a smoker, but also... 98% of people with schizophrenia are, by the way. Wow. And I've studied why in la in a lab here in Pittsburgh. Oh, wow. Um, with Rob Sweet, and it has to do with pre-pulse inhibition, and we... Uh, it's it's fascinating stuff, but anyway, I'm wow. sorry for interrupting. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, yeah. no, was, she, she was smoking, and um, even by that time, you know, this is about 20 years ago. Even by that time, you know, her, uh, you know, uh, her lung health wasn't good, so she was already needed oxygen, and fell asleep, um, smoking, and 
you know, obviously if you have oxygen tanks in your apartment and you fall asleep smoking, that's the horrible um, combination. So her uh, apartment building, the entire building caught on fire and was destroyed. And, um, you know, and so then, and I was living with my dad at the time. I was like in my early 20s. And um, I moved out of the apartment. And that's when my mother started living with me. And I took care of her. You know, until she passed away. And I feel like I, you know, provided her, you know, a sense of dignity that she, she wouldn't have had otherwise if I hadn't, you know, taken on that responsibility. So, wow. What an incredible story. The, um, wow. So, to finish my thought that I interrupted you with, the, um, we think the reason that people with schizophrenia all smoke, essentially all smoke, is because there's this problem in schizophrenia where it's filtering out on these um, extra inputs where, for example, if you and I were sitting here eating dinner at a restaurant, we could focus on each other's conversation, but somebody with schizophrenia can't, they can't isolate one input and from all the others. So they can hear everybody talking and it's, it's incredibly um, disorienting and it Mm. actually leads to social isolation. It's one of the reasons people have to live by themselves and can't be around other people. We think that was one of the theories of the lab. And, Nicotine actually helps with that. It, it it improves that that filtering. Oh wow! And so that was why we thought that you know anyway. Um, wow, that's fascinating. Uh, weird. So, um, do you know uh, the history of Mary Todd Lincoln? I was just in Lexington, Kentucky no. last week. Mary Todd Lincoln was uh, Abraham Lincoln's sure. w- rich wife. You know, of course, she was a Southerner, and that's was the part of the story that I hadn't gotten before, but probably one of the reasons he rose to the presidency, like you said, you're from the North side, you're, you know, your wife's from the East end or something like that. Or well, no, she's from Beachview originally, but, but you know, you're, you know, African-American and white and it's right. kind of, you each have your own connection. You have, you have your own constituency and you can get that, that big, right. Whatever. So that was kind of, I think one of the things that happened with Lincoln is his wife was actually a Southerner. Both of her brothers fought for the Confederacy in the civil war. Wow. And, um, one of whom she never spoke to again, you know, et cetera. It's a whole long story, but the point is she was, she developed some mental health problems wow. later in life and her son put her into a, a mental institution, wow. essentially. Um, so um, it, it was a whole thing where, you know, some people think that it was, um, you know, like an example of uh, like, anti-feminism or like sure. uh, violence against women basically that maybe she wasn't as sick as we think but it, you know mm. it was a long time ago so it's hard to know exactly what happened but the point is that you could have done anything and you chose to take care of her and to give her that the best life that you could and I think that it's really incredible it's so cool that's awesome hmm Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> Kahari Mosley, <laughs> Dr. Gold Podcast. I can't believe we did it, man. Thank yeah, you so yeah, much for your time. So, no, thank you for your uh, patience. We finally made it happen. No, no, no. no. This was crucial. And I, I feel like we could go on for days. Like, sure, sure. No, I'll, I'll definitely come be back happy soon. to come back after after I, after I I'm sworn in on January 8th. Amazing. Congratulations. Okay, so the, it starts in January? Yeah, that's yeah. The that's term. official Just like the president. Yeah. Just like the president, right? Same exact Something timeline, like yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. November's yeah. election day. Right. And then January is the showtime. Right. Exactly. So I'll enjoy the holidays. I think we're going to go to uh, go to Florida for a week, you know, just to get away, you know, and 
Yeah, then get ready. You know, Tuesday, I guess it's a Tuesday or a Monday, but whatever whatever day of the week, January 8th is, is, we'll be swearing in. I'm so excited. I'm so excited for you. I'm, exci- I'm excited for Pittsburgh. I'm excited for the East End. I'm excited. This is going to be great. And um, thank you so much for doing all the, you know, Blue Sky, the events where you, you know, where you show up and just you, you come down, you know, to, right. to, to be with the rest of us. It's this open door that really just feels so... Um, it's so approachable. It's awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Let's get a picture. Yeah.